Okay, well, on to a brighter side of things, which, um, not brighter, I guess, but <clears throat> to contrast the concern, right? what are some things that you're hopeful for that you see um, in the church or in the next generation or just kind of what's going on? Yeah, so again, two things that came to my mind quickly. Again, I could probably come up with a sure. dozen things. Um, two things that came to my mind quickly is actually in reaction to what we just talked about is as it gets harder to be a Christian, what we end up doing is weeding out imposters. And so what I'm seeing that I'm encouraged with is that more authentic, devoted, true followers of Jesus are, are coming to the surface. And I'm encouraged by that. They may not be as many in number, but it's never been about that. Mm-mm. I love the story in the Old Testament. It's Gideon. You know, he's got this, he's got an army, but he's going up against an enemy that's, if I remember correctly, is described as, as the number of the um, sands on the shores. Mm. So it was like just this unlimited number of soldiers. He's got an army, and it's pretty big, but he's going up against a really big foe. And so he's... He's scared and nervous about being able to win the battle. So he goes to God and he asks for help. And what happens is that God keeps whittling down his army. And Gideon's kind of like, God, uh, we're going in the wrong direction here. (laughs) And God eventually, if I remember correctly, is down to like 300 soldiers. And you think, this is impossible. I got got this innumerable enemy and you've just taken all of my best soldiers and you've run them off. You've disqualified them. And now I got 300 soldiers. And God's like, yeah, now, now I have you at the number that I need because I'm going to fight for you. And I only need 300 to do this. Mm. And he ends up, you know, winning. And I think that's a really powerful um, illustration of what God's, really about through the church. It's not about the size of the church. It's about the power of the church and where they get their power from. And, uh, you know, I've been a pastor for 35 years, and I've, I'll admit that I've probably been um, uh, a part of the game in some ways, is you measure success by how big your church is. And you're frustrated that your church isn't bigger, right? Or you're concerned about why it isn't the most, you know, the largest church in town or whatever. And you have to keep in mind, but that God's never really ever used big numbers. He's often used small numbers, small handfuls of people, but their level of devotion was so great that he could do amazing and uh powerful and enormous things through them and so uh, that's that's why i'm encouraged that as it gets harder to be a christian and we call out c-u-l-l we call out that you know truer more devoted follower of jesus um, the church actually becomes stronger and so i'm i'm kind of encouraged that um i can i can look at our church and i can see a certain movement of people who are just becoming more and more determined, and I mean that in the good way, more and more determined, more and more humble, more and more um, diligent, 
to really cultivate and nurture their faith in Jesus Christ and live the way that he invites them to. And, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that's not happening in other churches. I'm just saying I, as the pastor of this church, can look and see shining examples yeah. of people becoming more and more devoted to following Jesus Christ as they realize more and more that the stakes are getting higher and higher. And so I'm encouraged by that. And I'm actually seeing that um, not just with older people. I'm I'm seeing that in some young people. I'm seeing that in some 20-somethings. And uh, so I like that. I think another expression of that authenticity that um, I find interesting is, and I'll I'll describe it this way, for years the church was perceived as very traditional. And, you know, at some point like 60s and 70s, that traditional church was perceived as, you know, stodgy and lifeless and out of touch and, you know, irrelevant. And so there was this big movement, 60s, 70s, 80s, hits its, you know, kind of its heyday in the 90s of the contemporary church. And everything was sort of brought up to speed. The music, the way that message was delivered, the the architecture, the whole liturgy of the church was was um, made more contemporary as a way of engaging a new audience, bringing in a new appeal, um, creating greater interest. And I'm not critical of it because I was a part of creating something that seemed more contemporary as a way of engaging the person who was bored with the traditional. But really what's happened in the last 25, 30 years is that the contemporary just became the new traditional. Mm Mm-hmm. And so really what you end up having is you have, very tra- you have very contemporary expressions of worship, but people are now as equally bored with it as they were 30 years ago with the traditional church. And so I think part of this movement toward authenticity is that there's a group of people, and probably led by younger people, who are saying, okay, I'm kind of done with the lights and the sound and the fog and the, you know, the the fancy, I'm looking for something more simple, more authentic for me to approach God with. And so I, I, I see this kind of refreshing, let's return back to the basics. Let's be real and honest about what the story is really like. And let's um, really just get back to the word, get back to prayer, get back to a true expression of worship rather than, you know, some fancy sort of, you know, show of worship. And, and so I'm encouraged by that. Um, yeah, I agree because it's not even why, I guess a question, why is it? And no, why well, it's the same reason that we kind of outlined, but why is it that the fancy show, the light and the contemporary music, why is that accompanied by weak teaching also and weak values? It's like, we well, are not, it's not the lights that I think the people are tired about. Oh, no. You know? No, I don't know. That's not the point you were making. Yeah. It's just lights, no lights, electric guitar, no electric guitar. It's like um, if, if we're going to become more contemporary, if we're going to go back to traditional, it's like be one or the other, but just teach, teach the scriptures. Yeah. Um, now, that's, that's a good observation. And again, from, from a young person like yourself, is that what is it about contemporary format that somehow ended up leading to weak or shallow teaching. 
And I, I know the answer to that. It's not the, it, it isn't the right answer, but it is the answer. And that is that there was this great desire to make the church more approachable and appealing, particularly to the person who was new to it all. So there was this perception is that the lighter I make it, the more accessible I make it, the more people who can engage. Well, the problem with making it more accessible and more engaging was there was then um, this decision that said, well, I can't talk about hard things. Yeah, it got into our doctrine. Yeah, it stumbled down into our doctrine to say, well, I, I, well, I, have, to, I have to play soft with sin. And I can't really, you know, call them to repentance. And I can't, um, I can't talk about, you know, the scary things of hell. And I have to make this easy and comfortable and inspirational, meaning like inspire them. And you're right, it got weak. It got soft. It, it, it avoided the hard stuff. And we're, again, we're paying the piper for that. Um, because now we have a generation of believers who grew up in that era who, like we just talked about, they don't know their Bible. Or they don't know the true depth of all that's contained in the Scriptures. They know the, good, the fun stuff, the easy stuff, the loving stuff, the you know, comforting and inspiring stuff, and there's just more to it. And so I'm encouraged because I... I'm seeing examples of, no, give me the deep stuff. Give me the harder stuff. Give me, I'll decide what I do with it. Just one, don't yank me around, but two, don't hide it from me. Um, go after the hard stuff because I'm trying, uh, even even a, a non-Christian who's interested in you know change or interested in spiritual things, they're saying, I'm trying to reconcile your God with my world. Mm. So tell me the truth. Give me the goods. I'll sort it out. I'll end up deciding what I'm going to do with it, but give it to me. Don't, don't protect me from it. And I like that. I, I, I find that, like you said, I, I find that um, encouraging about what I'm, I'm seeing. And, I, you know, certainly I'm hoping that I can, I can be one of those voices that, Again, not about being mean or being aggressive or being insensitive or being, you know, um, cruel, but being honest and truthful about here's the dilemmas that we face. Here's what society or contemporary culture will tell you is right or good or just. But then here's what God's word has to say about that. And we have to find the courage to live that, even if it, is necess- is is unpopular in our contemporary society or if it not that we are going out of our way to upset someone but if as a consequence of speaking uh and proclaiming who God is by way of what the scripture says about him if a consequence of that is that somebody gets upset i would rather them be upset than me not portray an accurate representation of who God is cuz yeah. the consequences of that are far worse than sure. a nasty comment right yeah, so we, we get criticized, Christians get criticized as, well, your love is judgmental and hateful. And we've talked about this before, but the most loving thing that a Christian can do is tell the truth. Because 
the eternal consequences are so severe. And once a person passes into eternity with, with having rejected Jesus Christ, there's no turning back, there's no undoing that, there's no fixing it. That's an eternal condemnation of them and their sin. And so it really is the most loving thing that we can do is to tell them about the stakes and what they are, tell them about the truth of Jesus, not because you're being mean, but because you're being loving. Now, granted that all is um, shaped by the words you use and the attitude that you have and the, you know, the tone of voice and the the way that you navigate the difficult conversation. Yeah, I'm all for that being as loving as the truth that we are presenting. Um, but to shy away and um, not tell somebody it isn't love. Um, you're actually um, you're actually showing how little they value, how little value they have to you by not being concerned. Yeah, if you believe that, then. Tell them to take their smoke detectors off their ceiling. It's no different. Explain that one to me. Well, if we're telling somebody about their sin, it's very similar to telling them, like, hey, your house is on fire. Okay. And in one day, it might, you might get, it might collapse in, and you might not make it out. We're gonna, I love someone to go and tell them if I were to see that. Or I would hope that their alarm would be set to where it's like, hey, this house is on fire. Yeah. You should probably get out. Okay. Or, hey, you should turn okay. away. It's like, because... Uh, Ultimately, it's like the danger that they're in, if repentance is, is not taken, is far worse than just burning up into a house. In a house, sure. And so, um, sure. We should, like we should, you, you should be want, wanting to warn them out right. of love, right? And and care. Yeah, because the truth of the matter is, at the end of the day, the Christian who's unwilling to share the love of Christ that's captured in the truth of the gospel is simply saying, I don't care where you spend eternity. Or they don't believe that the news is good. Good point. And that goes back to mm-hmm. the ignorance of their you know, understanding of Scripture and the nature of the Word of God. So it's, it's all kind of wrapped up um, in, the, in the same thing. Um, I, you know, here's a, here's a great, ex- I think it's a great example. It's very personal to me because I've, I've witnessed it very personally over the last four years. So my, my youngest son just graduated from college, age 22. And um, he went to a state university, a secular university, and one that would be described as a very liberal university. No, no question about it. And there were people who were very concerned that we would send our sons to a school like that because of what would happen to their faith. And, uh, in the, and I'm just thinking specifically of, of my youngest son because it's most recent. Um, he actually, in those four years, blossomed and thrived in his faith in Jesus Christ by leaps and bounds. And here he was immersed in the education and the environment of that liberal university. But... He was, uh, I think what this was the, the deal maker, is that he was a part of a Christian fraternity, mm. and he had a group of peers around him, both, you know, both the fraternity, so m- other young men around him, and then through their connections with other 
sororities and other um, campus groups, men and women his age, who were deeply devoted to their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, he and a number of his buddies were very involved in uh, ministry to uh, high school students in their area and um, various missions opportunities. So I watched my youngest son go off to one of the most secular liberal universities in the United States and literally thrive in his faith. And um, the way the way I've said it and um, commented a number of times is the young men that I met in that fraternity through my son, I can honestly say are some of the finest young men I've ever met. And they come from all different places, you know, in the United States. Um, I've had the chance to meet their parents at, you know, various functions. And I'm just, like, astonished. I'm like, wow, these young guys are sold out for Jesus Christ, are committed to living their faith as Christ followers, even in a very difficult environment. And I just saw these wonderful attitudes, these servant hearts. And I, I, I was just, I found that so encouraging that as much as I'm grateful for the education my son received, I'm even more grateful for the young people that he was surrounded by and the enormous influence they had on his life and his faith. And, um, and what I saw was um, a group of people, again, I'm just looking at this little microcosm of my experience, these deeply devoted followers of Jesus who are early 20s. And so in response to your question, what do I see that's encouraging and hopeful? I'm going that, that I can, I can imagine that that's not only true at that university, but that universities across the United States, as much as we have concerns about, you know, what's being advanced and promoted and propagated in, um, in universities around the United States, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe and hope that there's these little remnants of groups of students who are pursuing Christ with tremendous devotion and diligence and the Spirit of God's using them in some way on that campus and will use them now in the marketplace as they graduate. And that just like we see in the Old Testament, just like we read about in the book of Revelation, they represent what I'll call a remnant of really authentic, sincere followers of Christ who... um, are going to be a voice and an ambassador for the gospel in our world. And so that gives me hope, and that encourages me to think that it's not all lost, that as much as there's plenty to uh, consider as negative and and hopeless and and loss, um, God's going to be faithful to preserving uh, the gospel and the church and it's not going to die off with, you know, the, the 60s and 70-somethings who were a part of a different era, that God's raising up a group of young men and young women in high schools and in colleges who, you know, they'll, they'll replace the 70s and 80-year-olds as they pass away and kind of take their legacy of faith uh, to heaven. Um, there's still a legacy of faith that's being left.
And um, again, maybe a small in number comparatively, but a God, potent, potent. Uh, yeah, a very good, very good word, a very potent presence that, again, goes back to the story of Gideon is that God doesn't need lots. He just needs a certain quality of devotion in a few people, and he can do great things through them. Well, and, you're, and the story you just told about your son growing in his faith because he found that, that, that small community also goes to show how uh, useful persecution can be in making faith stronger because there's no more place where your peers will persecute you because of your faith than a university campus. There's no place where it's harder or even where it's harder to be a Christian uh, or to live the Christian life because... Let's be real. We all know how most people's freshman year at college goes. It's like right. freedom, <laughs> and yeah. and so uh, not only if you can avoid those things with a, with a great community, or you know at least for the, the most part or whatever, but then also grow in, in uh, the growing difficulty to be a Christian and not to not be a secret Christian at least. Yeah, um, it, it goes to show the the usefulness of. Whenever you're pressed, whenever Christianity's pressed, is I think probably whenever it's at its best. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, both you and I are, you know, fairly uh, conscious about fitness and some of the things you have to do to stay fit, Um, whether that's, you know, running or lifting weights and the things that we're involved in. Um, We both know that it's in that the hardship of the training that over time you become stronger and more capable. And I think it's a biblical principle that God's been using for centuries is that as people experience difficulty, whether that's uh, trauma in life or whether that's persecution for your faith, these experiences end up creating a stronger person. And, you know, James chapter 1, he actually... It says, James writes, you know, count it all joy. Like, it's a good thing. It's hard. It's difficult. It's no fun in it. But count it a good thing. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials because that that difficulty, that lifting those weights, that's running those miles, those are actually working in your favor to create something stronger. Mm-hmm. And so I guess... Uh, as a way to end the conversation and tie these two topics together, what concerns me and what encourages me about or is hopeful about the church, they're actually, they're actually, they fit together, is that as the church endures, faces and endures more persecution for a witness of the gospel, it's a refining process that ends up creating a stronger church, a better church, a, a more dynamic church, maybe smaller, but again, God's always used the small things to create huge impact. I was just thinking, if I were our enemy, that'd be so annoying. <laughs> so like, come on. It looks like I'm winning, but I'm not. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that in Acts, there was actually a, a a conversation in the book of Acts, there was a conversation about, hey, we, we got to be careful about persecuting these Christians because every time we, we do, they just grow stronger. They just yeah. multiply. So yeah. 
we got to think our strategy through here. If we end up just making their lives so miserable, then they end up winning and we end up losing because they, they multiply. And that's pretty wise and discerning because that's exactly what God has demonstrated both in the Old Testament through the nation of Israel as well as in um, first century Christians. And we continue to see that um, at work in the world. It makes sense too. I mean, like if just think about the effect that like martyrs have on groups. Well, then you have God being the martyr. And it's like, well, of course this is going to be the most like potent, strongest, largest faith that's ever existed. It's like God was the martyr. Right. So makes sense when you think about it. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Well, I think that was a good place to end. Yeah. Uh, good conversation. Excellent conversation. I, I really, I enjoy all of our conversations. Oh, yeah. This one seemed to have a little bit more energy to it. Yeah. And you were throwing out all these big words, so it was, it was a valuable day. Well, it really tired me out because I've been holding back all these yawns. <laughs> oh, really? So, so, well, between those and burps, yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't even have a clue to that. so you, I did a pretty you, good job of holding them back. You did hide it really well, and folks who are watching online would have never known. No, but I doubt myself. <laughs> that, that part in the afternoon, in like 30 minutes, I'll be like, boom, back up to energy. But Yeah, you just got sleepy after eating that, that burger. Yes, and, and I still smell it. <laughs> Well, all right, everybody. We'll see you guys next week.